We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, What do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're going to spend at least two weeks on this text, because I think it needs to be dealt with in great particularity. We need to ask, who are our enemies and I asked my young son, Barnabas, this morning, who's your enemy? He said, I don't have any enemies. I said, so this text doesn't have anything to do with you? He said, well, I said, well, you just listen carefully. But next Sunday, I will try to answer that question, who are your enemies? I suggested during the welcome, sometimes our children feel like our enemies. This text relates to everybody, even if you don't feel like you have enemies. But next week, we try to get into the nitty-gritty. Who are they? What does love look like to an enemy? Different kinds of enemies get loved in the same way. It's not an easy question. But the bigger question, there's some things in this text about how, how you get the strength to do that and whether you do that before certain blessings come. And there's some larger issues. So I want to try to put this text in the bigger context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount in the bigger context of the ministry and teachings of Jesus so that we hear it with right ears. Because there, there are schools of thought in the Christian church over, over the years that find ways of silencing the Sermon on the Mount. Especially words like love your enemies or the rest of what's in this paragraph. For example, there's one group of of teachers or thinkers in the Christian church that says um, the Sermon on the Mount and things like this are not really the normative teaching for the church of Jesus Christ in this age because they really are part of the law before the cross belonging to that old thing. And maybe they will come into validity again in the millennium someday. But for the church now, we should key off of the epistles and not contaminate the free grace gospel of the apostles with this legalistic stuff of Jesus. There's, there's a lot of people who believe that in America today. It specializes in America, that teaching. And there's another group that comes from the other end of the theological spectrum and says, oh, we love the Sermon on the Mount. We love, love your enemies. But the rest of this stuff that Jesus talked about, who he was and uh, All of this sort of mythological stuff about coming into the world as a god from outside and dying a bloody sacrifice and rising from the dead and 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 there being faith and brokenness and yieldedness up to a physician who heals the soul. And 
that we can demythologize. We can get rid of all of that and take the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, that's love your enemies and that's practical and can change society and is still good in modern scientific America. We need that, but we sure don't need that other stuff. Now, the net effect is that both of these, one a very conservative theological orientation, one very liberal, nullify much of the Gospels. Now, when I think of that, you know the text that comes to my mind that kind of helps me weave in and out of that? The very last thing that Jesus said in this Gospel of Matthew. You remember it? All authority, he says, he's dead, risen, ready to ascend to the Father's right hand. And he, and he looks out at the, at the disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In that authority, go now and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is the key part, teaching them to observe everything that I have told you, taught you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, when I read that as a pastor, as one responsible to teach a flock, to feed a flock, when the Lord says, you love me, John, I say, I love you, Jesus. He says, feed this flock. And then he says, all of it. Don't you dare cancel out the Sermon on the Mount. To the end of the age, I have all authority. To the end of the age, I've got my hand on your shoulder. I'll help you. To the end of the age, you teach everything that I taught because it is valuable, helpful, edifying, needed in the church. So I come back then from Matthew 28, where he said that, to Matthew 5, and I tremble at the thought of saying, oh, this isn't really something that should be taught in this age. I tremble at that. And I will teach it this morning and next Sunday. And if it expands the Sunday after that. But I'm just planning two messages on this text for now. And what I want us to do first then is to catch the, the nearer context of this command to love our enemies. And what we see in the nearer context is that leading up to it in chapter 5, there have been six. Uh, statements of contrast between what was taught before and what Jesus is teaching. Now, I want, I want you to see these because we won't understand what's going on here unless we catch why Jesus is doing this. They begin in verse 21, but just before verse 21 comes a very key verse, namely verse 20, which says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, after he's saying, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he gives these six statements. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, what I think he's doing, try this on now. See if you think it fits as we look at it. What I think he's doing is saying, the scribes and the Pharisees had a way of, of reading the Old Testament and the traditions and applying them to life. And they got so far in their way and their understanding. And I'm telling you, unless your righteousness goes farther than that, you won't get to heaven. And then he says, you have heard that it was said. That's their way of righteousness. But I say to you, this is your way of righteousness. Let's read them. Let's just look at them one at a time. There's six. I'll just 
cycle. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Number two, verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not love, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Number three, verse 31. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Number four, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Number five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Number six, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, what's Jesus doing in these six contrasting statements? I think he's, he's spelling out for us what he meant in verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds... That of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He is describing a way of life that leads to heaven. It's authentic, it's deep, it's unhypocritical. You must live it in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I do not think Jesus is saying, now mark this, I have a standard of righteousness that is so high that as I articulate it, I expect nobody to be able to do it. So don't even try, look away from yourself to the cross, receive forgiveness, accept an imputed righteousness from me, and you go to heaven. Don't think that's what he's teaching. We must look to the cross. We must receive an imputed righteousness that is perfect, or we will not enter glory. But that's not what he's saying here. He is saying here, unless your righteousness that I'm spelling out now in these six statements, unless your righteousness goes beyond their hypocritical, superficial performance level righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Something very profound is being assumed here. I will make a case for this, that when you read, love your enemies, don't swear, don't lust. Don't be angry. When you read these, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is assuming a massive conversion that has taken place. A transformation of the heart in here. A new birth, an adoption into the family of God. The indwelling of a kingdom power that enables and releases this kind of freedom and authenticity in life. He's assuming all of that. That has to happen First, something very deep has gone on. Now, I need to show you that from the Sermon on the Mount itself and then close by showing you the pieces of his teaching outside the sermon that would show us how we experience that, that conversion. So let's stay with the Sermon on the Mount for just a moment and I'll try to show you why it is, I think, that this righteousness is a righteousness that we are called to live out, not perfectly. We will not live it out perfectly, but we live it out authentically, powerfully, deeply, real. 
Go with me to verses 44 to 45, right here in the text that Steve read. But I say to you, this is verse 44 of chapter 5. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's a very troubling text, isn't it? Love your enemies in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Here's two possible meanings. One, it could mean get on with the business of trying to love out of your own moral resources built in by creation so that you can win your way into being a child of God. Which would be a frightening interpretation. The second possible interpretation would be love your enemies and thus prove yourself to be a child of God, a chip off the old block, having the character of your father, evidencing the spirit of your father within because he loves his enemies, which is what the rest of the text says. He makes the sun rise on Minneapolis, both the good and the evil. He made rains come yesterday so that pagan farmers and godly farmers both would have crops that grow. He loves his enemies day after day after day. Be like your father. Show that you are, are a child of God. Now, which of those interpretations is right? I mean, I want the second one to be true. Fits my theology. I want to have established a fatherly relationship by grace with me that frees me to love rather than saying, you got to get loving your enemies or you will not be, become, ever enter into a relationship with me as father. If that's what he's saying, then I'm cast back on my own resources to work my way into his family. Now, which of those is, is true? Let me show you two or three reasons from the Sermon on the Mount why I think the second one, namely that God has freely, graciously established a father relationship with us, which we'll talk about how in a minute, with us, which then frees us to love. First of all, look at chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Now, notice two things. He doesn't say the one who might become your father if you do enough good works. He says, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and give glory to the one who is now your father as you do these good works in heaven. It's very crucial. Secondly, notice in that that it says when you do good works, they're going to glorify your father. Not you. Why? Why? Because it's your father within you who is freeing you, enabling you, empowering you, loving you into loving others. So that the light that is shining is the light of God within you. That's the light. When Jesus says, let your light shine, that, then they, that men may see glory, they mean God's glory. He means God's glory. And the glory of God is that wonderful grace that he has poured into us, poured onto us, is working through us toward others. 
So if we just take that one verse, 516, it's clear that these disciples are already children, excuse me, children of God. And they're doing good deeds like loving their enemy is done in such a way that God gets the glory, not them. And therefore, it must be God and his life and his glory and his life energizing and empowering and freeing them. That came first. So don't miss this. Don't misread the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount says many things that if you took them just in, in the sentence all by itself, love your enemies in order that you may be sons of God, you might walk away from that and say, oh, man, that's, I'm, no way. I can't ever work my way into becoming a child of God. I don't have any love within me. And we don't, apart from God. Something went first in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the second clue that that's the case. Look at chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, Now, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Shall your father, now notice there, that he, he is their father. He is their father. He's not becoming, he is. How much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, not only does that verse say, he is your father, and he loves to hear your prayers, and he loves to give you what you need, so that you can do what you need to do, but it calls us evil. Isn't that great? And the reason that is so great is because you might conclude that if you stumble, if you fail, if you fall, huh, I don't have that relationship anymore. Whereas this text, here's Jesus, he's looking out on these disciples, and he, he's saying, if you, being evil, unflattering and unsentimental, not trying to enhance our self-esteem here, is if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, your father, you failing, stumbling, evil disciple? I just find that so helpful. I just find that so helpful. Nevertheless, there is a righteousness without which we will not see the Lord. It must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. It isn't perfection, though we aim at it. But the main point here is the connection between verse 11 and 12. Some of your versions I know don't have this word therefore at the beginning. Some have so, which is okay, but it's here and it is crucial. And I'm sorry it was dropped from your version if you don't see it. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, However you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is love now. Where does love come from, according to verse 12? He says, your father in heaven is a prayer hearing, beneficent, loving, caring God. Come to him and he will give you what you need. He may not give you the exact thing you ask for. You ask for a loaf of bread. He may not give you bread. He may give you kaopectate. But he won't give you a stone. Having a father like that, therefore, love. It isn't the other way around. Oh, I hope, you know, I, 
I know that I tend to be a uh, grammatically oriented preacher. And you know, he, 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 he gets all involved in grammar. Oh, that I could make grammarians of you all. Well, I don't care if you've ever been to school. Everybody needs to know the difference between therefore and because. Because the whole theology hangs on it. If I said, if I said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and therefore God will be your father. It'd be heresy. It'd be heresy. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give you good things when you ask him, therefore? Therefore, because you've got that kind of father, take the risks it takes to love. You can do that now. You got that? That's my second argument for why verse 44 in chapter 5, when it says, love your enemies in order that you might be sons of your father, does not mean love your enemies so that you could earn your way into the family. It means Love your enemies so that you show what family you belong to. Okay? You got the difference? Third clue. One more clue. Chapter 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. And every bad tree bears bad fruit. Which means you cannot become a good tree by bearing good fruit. Can't do it. You cannot hear God say, to get into the kingdom, you must be a good tree. And they say, oh, what shall I do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll bear good fruit. And, and thus become a good tree. It's totally backwards. You've got to become a good tree, that is, a child of God, born again, indwelt by the powers of the age to come, forgiven for your sins, cleansed by the blood, loved by Christ. You've got to become a good tree so that you can bear fruit. So there it is again. In the Sermon on the Mount itself, you don't have to go to Paul's theology or John's theology or anybody else's theology. You just have to read carefully and see Jesus' teaching that something happened massively in a conversion before you can love your enemy. And the loving of the enemy is not the means whereby you get yourself converted. That conversion is something very different, and we'll get to that in just just. A moment. It's like a new birth. He said in other places. It's the gift of a gracious, gracious God. Our loving our enemies is proof of our family status, not payment in order to get into the family. Now, let me close by stepping outside the Sermon on the Mount and just sketching for you in about five minutes here. Um. The bigger picture of how Jesus, in his own language, how easy it would be for me here to jump over to the, the epistles, to Romans, say, and show you 
uh, what it is to be transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and his blood atonement. And, and uh, some of you might say, oh, that's Paul. And Paul and Jesus aren't speaking the same languages because some people think that Paul changed Jesus all around. Look, we do not have to go to Paul in order to see all that Paul taught, taught and what Jesus teaches about how you get converted. What is this? What is this thing that has to happen to you? That makes you a good tree, that makes you a child of God, that gives you the inner resources that don't come from yourself. So that when you hear the command, love your enemy, you don't say, there's no way. But rather you say, oh, that's a big, big demand. But you're a big, big God and you love me that way. And and what? 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 What happened to us? Let me just spell it out with six verses. I'll just cite them. Make a sentence and we'll be done. Number one. The first one is in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, verse three. It's good to know where the sermon starts, what the note struck at the beginning is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Qualification number one for the kingdom is Bankruptcy. Okay. Anybody that begins with bankruptcy, poverty of spirit, knows they're never, ever going to qualify on their own. They're never going to earn their way into the family. They're never going to produce enough loving deeds or good deeds in order to get into the family. It cannot be done. Jesus holds out these gospel hands and he says, Blessed are the poverty stricken. Blessed are the bankrupt who mourn, who mourn. Second text, Mark ten fifteen. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. So the first step in someday entering this kingdom is to, like a little child, receive it. That means don't come to the kingdom and put on any airs of self-sufficiency. Oh, I qualify because I'm better than so-and-so. I don't do those things. I fast twice a week and I, I, I must surely qualify. If you do that, you're not coming poverty-stricken and you're not coming like a little child. A little child, did you see those little children here? If they had set those little children down here and we all walked out, they'd be dead in two days. Every one of them. Dead. There's nothing they can do. They are totally dependent on mommy and daddy. That's the way you are. If you don't, if you don't awaken to that fact and relax in that fact and, and just wah wah your way into the kingdom, then you won't make it. Poverty stricken, childlike. Here's the third one. Mark 2.17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So are you sick or healthy? If you're healthy, you don't qualify. If you think you're healthy, you don't qualify. Only bankrupt people, helpless little children, and sick people qualify. That's what those three texts say. This is the gospel as Jesus articulated. This is the gospel of grace. This is the gospel of the open arms. 
This is the gospel that says you cannot perform your way in. You cannot work your way in. You cannot pay your way in. You can only bankrupt your way in, childlike your way in, and stick your way in. That's all. The only people who get in are sick people, helpless children, and bankrupt people. That's the gospel. We're all on level ground here. Unless you have some airs you want to put on before one another and say, I don't like being called poverty stricken. In fact, I've worked hard all my life to not be poverty stricken. And I don't like being called a little child and I don't like being called sick. Look, I don't like it either. But I am so thankful that that's what he offers. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, salvation, a relationship with the Father for bankrupt, childlike, sick, sinful people. Text number four. The self-sufficient saw Jesus doing this, doing it, not just saying it, but doing it. And you remember what they said? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, and he got brittle. Okay. You remember what Jesus said in response to that? He told three parables. The main one, the climactic one, was the parable of the prodigal son. Have you ever asked yourself, why did he respond to that criticism? This man eats sinners. I mean, <laughs> he does not eat sinners. This man eats with sinners. He receives sinners and eats with them. Why does he respond to that? By saying, there was a father who had a wayward son who squandered his living and became so bankrupt that he ate with pigs and came to himself. That's what I'm praying is happening right now in some of you. Came to himself and said, maybe he'll have me back as a slave. I just... Go home. He starts home, and his father, undignified, pulls up his robes, starts running, running toward his son, arms out. The point of that parable is Jesus is saying, That's what I'm doing when I eat with sinners. That's what I'm doing. I am the love of God, I am the love of the Father. I am, my whole ministry is like this. To sinners. Text number five, Matthew twenty one thirty one, the almost unthinkable truth, which is the conclusion of all the others. Matthew twenty one thirty one says, Truly I say to you, tax gatherers and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before the priests and the elders. It takes your breath away. Harlots, which is prostitutes, are going into the kingdom before the pastors? How can that be? How can that be? Well, everything we've said up until now shows you how it can be. The issue was not shape up. The issue was, will you recognize that you're bankrupt? Will you recognize that you're as helpless as a child? Will you recognize that you're sick? And these tax gatherers and these prostitutes, they didn't have any. They were. They just knew it. And so they sat down and when he ate with them, they couldn't believe it. The grace just was all over them. And he won them in. And if you ask, which we do ask, and this gets very close to Paul's way of writing, how can that be? How can that be? He's a holy God. Prostitutes and these 
greedy, complicit sex gatherers. Yuck! Who wants to be in a kingdom with them? And the, the last text says, Mark 10.45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, including prostitutes, tax gatherers. That's the foundation. There it is. You don't need to go to Paul or John or Peter. Here it is, all right here. Right here. The Son of Man came. And he didn't come to be served, to have people work their way into his fellowship. He said, I came to serve. He's down on the floor. He's got a towel around him. He's washing their face. And the last thing he does is put himself on a cross. And nobody takes his life from him, but he gives it up in order that he might ransom people. So if you feel this morning, I hear you talking, but my debt is deeper and wider and more horrible than you've ever known, John Piper. And that's probably true. But it isn't deeper and wider and more horrible than God knows or than the Son of Man knew when he said, you can't pay it, I pay it. And he gave his life as a ransom. So this ransom was put on the table that you might go free. And the price... Bankruptcy, helplessness, sickness, and receiving the physician. Let's pray. Lord, I know there's some in this room right now who need to acknowledge their bankruptcy, acknowledge their helplessness, acknowledge their sin sickness, and stop trying to run from it or impress you or anybody else and simply fall at your feet and feel the embrace of the Father. Feel what it's like to be supping with the king as a harlot or a greedy, lying tax collector. Lord, would you please make this such a true and delectable offer this morning that none in this room can turn it down. I pray that you would draw every person to a deeper love of your grace, a greater empowerment in it, a deeper reliance upon it. Lord, save the perishing, even in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.